0: Hi, I'm Khadija. I'm a rising senior at Barnard College and I study history. Um, and I'm here with Professor Rao, who teaches at Barnard and Columbia and is trained as a historical anthropologist focusing on issues of race and cost in South Asia. And Professor Rao works on the Ambedkar Initiative. I'm also with Priya Pai, a recent 2020 Columbia College graduate who doubled majored in computer science and English literature, specializing in post-colonial narratives. Priya was a board member of South Asian Feminism's alliance during her time at Columbia. So I first want to ask you, Professor Rao, if you can just tell us a little bit about the Ambedkar Initiative and what you hope to achieve with the project.
1: Thanks, Khadija. I'm happy to say a little more about the Ambedkar Initiative, which we started in 2018, about a century after B.R. Ambedkar studied at Columbia University. This is a project of critical commemoration, which thinks about the distinctive legacies of a figure who stretched ideas of democracy and equality in fundamentally new directions, who uh, exerted enormous influence in shaping and imagining Uh, the structure of the world's largest democracy, India. And so we want to think about uh, reverberations between the world's largest democracy and the world's oldest democracy, the United States. But we also want to think about how Ambedkar's own intellectual formation might open up new ways to understand the history of the university, uh, ways to turn the university inside out, if you will, to open up the university to novel gaze, to rethinking its relationship uh, with its own neighbors, for instance, with Harlem, but also the links between the university and the world and the ways in which the figure of Ambedkar might allow us to do so. And so the initiative is really thinking through projects of public humanities and critical and collaborative pedagogy, as a way in which to mark uh, this this extraordinary uh, figure and the ways in which he begins to allow us to create new sets of linkages, to understand new intellectual formations and uh, forms of political solidarity and allyship uh, that really function as a kind of bridge between the past and the present, if you will.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the significance of this interwar period? What opportunities for action and thought were created by the various transnational currents of this period? And then could you tell us a little bit about the links between race and caste today? How do we see this kind of cross-border solidarity and globalism taking on new forms? Um, I think especially given the Black Lives Matter movement and the globalization of anti-Black racism and resistance to it.
1: So, let's think about the interwar period, but also go back maybe a little bit before that. Now, the interwar f- period was preceded by uh, 1905, the Russian-Japanese War, which was really absolutely crucial for uh, uh, people in the colonized world, right? Because this was the first time that we actually had a, a um, an Asian power that had defeated a European one. This was the way that the 1905 Russian-Japanese War uh, was cast in people's imaginations. We also have 1917 and the significance of the Bolshevik Revolution, the Russian Revolution, which opens up an altogether new understanding of uh, political subjectivity, the capacity for mass action, and it in fact brings to the fore a completely new political subject, right? The so-called working class, as the proletariat, as actually the ones who make history. Right? They're ignored, they're unseen, and yet it is their labor and it is their actual work in the world that is capable of transforming it. So I think the interwar period was this very important moment where we were beginning to see uh, anti-colonial movements creating connections between each other we're seeing a period where people are really on the move. People are mobile, they're moving, they're moving in fugitive ways, they're moving because they're interested in uh, fomenting revolution. Uh, And then we also have this movement of uh, new political ideas in the time, new ideas, whether of social democracy or Marxism. But we're also beginning to have very important arguments, for instance, coming from the perspective of black thought, anti-caste, thinking, and so forth, where the question of minority rights, the rights of subaltern peoples who actually are the world's majority, but are dispossessed, but are marginalized, really comes to the fore, right? And this is also a period of enormous experimentation. We could think about even someone like Gandhi And his experiments, the ashram experiments, the idea of kind of re-ethicizing the self through the performance of degraded labor. We have people exploring what today we might think of as uh, experiments with lifestyle. So new ways of being, questions around sexuality, around gender, uh, new ways of creating social collectives. So, this is really the the great significance of the interwar period more broadly speaking. You know today we are in the middle of uh, protests global protests against anti black racism the black lives Matter, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has become absolutely crucial as a global force, especially I think for young people. So, your question about what do we take away from the past, what does that tell us today? I think what we can take away from this past that I've been speaking about is a history of affinity, of comradeship, of solidarity, and really of unexpected connections. Very often the connections were awkward, they were contradictory because people are contradictory in both their political proclivities, but also how they understand movement building. But I think we have the history of the Black Panthers who inspired the formation of the Dalit Panthers in 1972. We're seeing uh, connections at the level of human rights. Ambedkar writes in 46 to Du Bois and says, hey, share with me uh, the letter uh, and the, the request, the demand that you've placed before the UN uh, about you know, black racism, about American racism, and a global response to it. Something which was a kind of you know, name and shame on Du Bois's part. And Ambedkar says, I'd very much like to, to see that letter please, because we would like to make a similar argument about India's untouchables.
0: So you've given us some really great historical framing and contextualization, and I want to shift the focus now to think a little bit about the process of creating this project, which brings together an incredibly diverse and cross-disciplinary group of students. And I know you prioritized democratizing the process of knowledge production in doing this project. And so I want to hear a little bit about how, as a collective, you facilitated new ways of teaching and learning. And then I also want to think a little bit about how, at the same time as the pandemic has limited our ability to be physically together, it has also limited our access to the physical archive.
1: To my mind, uh, the initiative is only so good as the students who participate in it, right? I can enable, I can bring people together, but each iteration of this initiative is going to have a different force, a different flavor, a different rhythm, and I think that really depends on the students who constitute it. So very briefly, there were two kinds of students that I see who came into the project. One, students who were very interested in South Asian history. They wanted to know more about modern South Asia, and as a consequence of that, they got exposed to a number of figures that they perhaps would not have been exposed to, and they got to see the history of modern South Asia in a distinctive way i.e., by thinking about the question of caste and democracy, and not merely thinking about Gandhi as a heroic figure. They thought about the complicated and fraught and um, really politically charged histories of partition right, and what that meant. And so for the student in the classroom who is thinking about South Asian history, thinking about this part of the world, the world's largest democracy, but also a place that in the consequence of the war on terror had become newly politically salient, I think rethinking South Asian history was one way to enter this project. The second has been students who have been very interested in thinking about Ambedkar together with uh, scholars like Fanon or Gramsci or, uh, you know, Du Bois uh, and other really radical figures, Foulet and others, you know, people who've been interested in uh, global histories of democracy, but also social theory. So we all came together, and I want to say it's been it's been a it's a kind of beautiful dance in many ways, that you know people came together and uh, we decided in some sense to both collaborate around the figure of Ambedkar. But each of you brought very particular skills and interests to bear on how you saw the interwar, what you understood of the relationship, let's say, between caste and anti-black, caste and uh, black thought, and uh, distinctive interests in minority history, so where was gender? where was the question of sexuality, where were women in this project, Uh, and so on. And so each iteration, as I'm saying, will will bring out a different aspect of uh, Ambedkar's time at Columbia, but also the relationship between the university and the world at large. So the democratization of knowledge uh, has also happened through the pandemic. The pandemic has actually democratized lack of access. So we're all, in a sense, without access, uh, access to the archives we want to we enter. And in the context of that, we did, I think, two kinds of things as part of our working together. One, we, of course, looked at the significant online resources that exist. We made great use of uh, diasporic archives, uh, resources uh, that were cataloging and memorializing the South Asian diaspora in the kind of alternative ways that I've been speaking about. So the South Asian American Digital Archive is one, uh, but there is also a site called Radical Desi, Uh, There are sites in India called Dalit Camera that uh, take on interviewing important Dalit activists and intellectuals who otherwise would not come into the mainstream at all. So there's really been a kind of proliferation of social media as a consequence of not having access to the physical archive. So we've seen uh, social media, we've seen online archives, but we're also seeing something that I believe we're doing, which is people are beginning to create their own archive. They're beginning to signify or create a significance to uh, ways in which different kinds of material, different kinds of evidence can be pulled together to create both archival importance, but also archival regularity. And so I should just end by noting that I think any act like this of creating or self-making the archive means that it uh, forces us to also think about questions of ethics and responsibility. And so we have to think about what we're using, where it comes from, and how we put material out into the world.
0: So you've spoken a little bit about this kind of turn to the digital that has been necessitated by the the challenges raised by the pandemic. And I think that's something I want to hear a little bit more about, especially given that for most of us doing this project, the podcast was a very new way to do this kind of historical and academic work.
1: Absolutely. This is where you um, catch me, um, the teacher, becoming the student. Uh, Because, you know, I got very interested in um, questions of spatial mapping, of digital humanities, I suppose, ways in which one could think about uh, uh, accessing hidden histories, hidden archives, dark archives, and so forth. I got exposed to this through colleagues of mine who were much more facile and familiar with the world of digital humanities. But I think I also began to think a few years ago, three or four years ago really now, about the fact that students in my classroom, and Priya is a perfect example of it, that I was beginning to see students in my classroom who had a deep commitment to social thought or historical work or ethnographic work, but they were also coming with these fantastic skills, technological skills. They knew how digital humanities worked. They had an altogether different way of making sense and even seeing things because they had been in that space of, let's say, computational science. So this was really where, for me, the initiative, the Ambedkar initiative, was, was so rich and significant because I found myself relying on my students and the knowledge that they brought. I wanted to get into their brain and say, how do you see this? What can we do with this material? And so I think I want to turn to Priya, who, as I said, was one of the students in the classroom who brought those skills to bear. I found out about it late in the day, and she can say a little bit about how she then got pulled into some of the organizing work on campus and also the DH work that she's been doing uh, and how she was able to help us with it. But really, I want to, um, you know, uh, gesture to and give over to Priya to actually speak about the specifics of this.
2: So, you know, um, on the one hand, um, we are, you know, creating podcasts. We're creating a finding aid of archival materials. Um, This will give access to people who aren't able to physically come to Columbia um, and will give access to um, these materials to communities who these materials would mean most to. Um, I really do see this digital project as a way to... Uh, challenge the power dynamics of the archive and, you know, to digitize the historical record and completely rethink the way history is made and preserved um, and even thought about because new voices can be heard and make themselves heard because of this project. Um, but, you know, as, like I said, as I studied, you know, computer science and when we were thinking about, you know, designing websites and uh, creating materials, we are, have to make sure that we're not, um, replicating the barriers that modern issues in like history and theory, um, have. (laughs) So when we're creating these finding aids and podcasts, we're at, you know, the Ambedkar initiative, we're making sure we're creating a like low tech site that won't advance, you know, flashy plugins and, um, you know, advanced, uh, like technologies, because our main point is not to necessarily make this like flashy technological thing, but rather to, you know, have an entry point into access, um, and giving access to, uh, materials that have previously been kept in the confines of a university and have been only accessible to Columbia students. Um, so you know, I can give a few examples of the way we're trying to manifest this idea of access. Um, You know, specifically with our podcast, for example, we are trying to provide transcripts um, because, you know, we imagine that this is going to allow for the opportunity for translation for people to engage with our words and phrasings and ideas um, and actually, you know, Talk with us. We, we we encourage you know collaboration, and we're trying to actively um, engage like the archive with the public and with communities who can now add to the digital historical record. Um, another example is we're going to be you know publicizing annotations of various texts and providing options for the public to add to our annotations. Um, like this will be moder- moderated, of course, but you know, we're really trying to manifest this idea of adding to the cumulative knowledge-making process online. And I think that's the beauty of the digital space because we can now um, engage our work and, and engage this materials with people we don't have to be geographically tied to. Um, and it allows us to connect with a host of ideas and um, concepts that we haven't maybe even heard of um, otherwise. So... As you know, my grounding in both fields kind of allows me to um, help us, you know, find new modes of uh, presenting history and presenting the archive. Um, and you know, as scholars and students, we can now engage with materials and go about learning in a completely different way. Um, So, you know, we are thinking about um, different types of space and how we can represent this type of space in the digital world. So, you know, we have the geographic space on one level where um, we can kind of, you know, have this mapping, right, where scholars who, you know, briefly collided in the same space and time. Um, and, you know, had this one conversation, but it, you know, sparked a whole idea of like collaboration and intersectionality of ideas. We can kind of represent that on a map. We can track people's voyages. Um, We also have the theoretical space. Um, We can create a map of ideas um, and uh, we can also, a timeline of ideas too, and see like which one came from another, what stemmed from what, what um, is what are offshoots? Um, we're tr- we're able to completely think about theory and think about concepts um, in a more interrelated way. Um, but we also have uh, the imagined space, right? So we can imagine things that um, never even happened. Uh, so what if Du Bois and Ambedkar had met earlier than they did um, and represent that somehow on the internet and um, really allow this space for just pushing the bounds of history of um, what is available in the physical and transcend those dimensions, transcend what we have previously thought was um, possible um, in this new digital space.
0: Okay, thank you so much for this really brilliant introduction to the podcast series. As we've heard, the Embedker Initiative is embarking on a really exciting project, one that's fundamentally collaborative and multidisciplinary, seeking to democratize knowledge production and think really seriously about the intersection of digital humanities and history creation. As Priya and Professor Rao have made clear, this is at its heart a public-facing project, one that we hope you'll all engage in over the next weeks and beyond.